Hi, I'm Ro, and I'll be your host tonight. Welcome to Getting Medieval, a podcast where we discuss the use of the Middle Ages in popular culture. Since this is the first episode, I thought I'd introduce myself a little bit more than I did in the trailer. I'm a fifth-year PhD student currently writing my dissertation about homo-romantic bonds between knights and the non-cyclic prose Lancelot, as well as working on a fun little article about poetic trauma and catharsis in Beowulf. My co-host for this evening is the wonderful Southern medievalist, Sarah. Sarah, tell us about yourself. Hi. So I am a fourth-year PhD student, um, and I'm interested in violence and death in early medieval texts and also in trans- in the transhistorical nature of those tales. So my dissertation is currently titled The Medievalish McCarthy, Medieval Afterlives in Appalachian Culture. So if you've listened to this trailer, then you know that this podcast is about the Middle Ages and pop culture. Specifically, it's about medievalism, which is a fancy word to describe what I just said. Well, but in broader terms, there's more than that. And we'll get into that later. So before we start with like the actual definition of medievalism, I want to ask you, Sarah, what's your thoughts on medievalism? So here are my totally spontaneous and unprepared thoughts on medievalism. So I really think on its surface, medievalism is a seemingly simple term for a complex and really multi-layered time period slash field of study slash subject. Like insert your word however it fits. Um, so it's kind of an umbrella term that encompasses a period of time and like a massive landscape. Um, So the way I hear it mostly being used today usually takes on two forms. Um, First, in pop culture, so typically referring to the general time period and usually with a dash of like fantastical or fantasy elements. So knights in armor, monsters and dragons, big battles, etc. And of course now Vikings, but we'll talk more about that later. Um, In the academic sphere, it now seems to be almost a pejorative term. So if you're into, quote, medievalism, then you're probably not a good, quote, medievalist. So because your scope of thought is probably too broad. Um, But I beg to differ on that one. And I feel like Roe will as well. So considering all of this rhetorical baggage, then to me, medievalism refers to how we understand, adapt and even subvert texts and tales from that time period. Uh, To simplify, medievalism represents a continued engagement with the body of texts as living documents. Medievalists tend to locate them solely within their time period. And before I make any enemies here, I'm not saying that one is inherently better than the other. In fact, I'd argue that good medievalism requires at least one good medievalist, a medievalismist, if you will. A medievalismist. I would love to try to say that like five times fast with my stutter because <laughs> which you probably won't hear because I have meticulously like crafted myself to like when I talk or read something, I don't. Well, now I'm going to stutter <laughs> because now I thought about it. But like when I'm talking in everyday conversation, it just like comes up. But anyway, um, yeah, I, I agree with a lot of what you said. And as both of us are medievalist, we go through the process of going of sending out applications and abstracts to conferences. And I've done at least two or three um, presentations on different aspects of uh, medievalism. And there's always at least one or two like snide comments about it. And but like, and it's really weird because there's also this push for more medievalism at conferences and papers. And so like at one hand, it is this a pejorative term, but paradoxically, it's also something that we want to engage in because it's what the, the general public engages in. And I love a medievalism. I think it is a really fun way for people to engage in the study of the Middle Ages without realizing they're doing so. But also because it gets people to Google these things. When you Google something, you start learning more about it. Like that's how I mean I found uh, a medieval studies is, is like I Googled uh, – like King Arthur or Merlin once and then just went down a rabbit hole and here you are. But we'll talk about that much later. So first I want to give you the def- the um, OED, Oxford English Dictionary, definition of medievalism. So it says, to quote, the system of belief and practice characteristic of the Middle Ages, medieval thought, religion, 
art, etc., the adoption of our devotion to medieval ideals, our usages, so occasions such as like fantasy, video games. Uh, if you've watched Vikings Valhalla, that is a product of medievalism. So that's the like definition that is accepted by many scholars in the field. Now, if you were to just Google medievalism, your first head is going to be the Wikipedia page, which I know that your teacher has told you not to use Wikipedia. And here's why. Here's a really good reason of why you shouldn't do it. Um, because it gives you this definition. That was me hitting my laptop. But then it adds in Western Europe at the end of it. Now, a lot of specific definitions in uh, papers and journals and dictionaries leave out Western Europe because we've kind of moved past that. But the fact that Wikipedia has it really kind of says a lot about how everyday people think about what the Middle Ages is, right? Mm-hmm. And I think um, for a lot of us who have been in the medieval academic world for the last 10 years, of course, we've seen such a major shift in what we consider medieval and where that is located, both figuratively and literally, um, and even how we have thought about language, which I'm sure is a whole other conversation that oh, we'll be yeah. having. But um, Wikipedia is not all bad, just needs some thought. Right. It's not all bad. I listen. This is a brief aside, but like if you're ever writing a paper and are struggling to find sources, sometimes if you just scroll down to the works cited, <laughs> you might be able to find something that will lead you on a wild goose chase for another source. Like I was trying to find something for my dissertation about like martyr, like martyrs and chivalric romance and I could not find a single source. And then I found like this one man on this one Wikipedia page that I followed and then – and my university's approved catalog found a bunch of sources. But that that's the teacher in me coming out. That's the – don't write off Wikipedia but also be critical of things that are not – I don't want to say are not academic because I hate that. And I think information shouldn't be locked behind a power – or um, not a power wall but like a – well, yeah. Paywall. Paywall. That's what I'm looking for. And that's I think – but that's the big issue and why we have medievalism today is that people want to engage in the sense of nostalgia theater about the Middle Ages. It brings us, it brings us closer to the past. But in that same caveat, it brings us closer to a Western European past mm-hmm. according to Wikipedia. And granted, that has um, started going away. It has definitely shifted in terms of fantasy, in terms of – Movies and video games, we've started seeing people of color being added to these worlds. We've also seen authors start investigating other worlds besides like medieval England. Like there's being there's works about medieval Nigeria. There's are works about a lot of works about the medieval Middle East, which some of those works have a real nasty uh, drop of Orientalism mixed in. So be careful when engaging in that. But all that is uh, to say is that medievalism is now in the forefront of people's minds because medieval academia has always been locked behind a paywall. What do you think about that? I think in one word that I didn't use in my original thoughts about medievalism is accessible. And for a lot of people, the you know medieval the works of medievalism for lack of a better way to put it does make it a lot more accessible for people and when we think about how things are buried or locked behind a paywall or locked behind you know you having to be in a program i think uh, obviously we need more public work and that's the thing i'm personally working on is more public facing work that often will engage in medievalism but uh, really fights to or really combats the, I don't want to say mistakes, but maybe some of those things that aren't quite correct about medieval texts and the culture itself and the global nature thereof. 
like Hollywood being obsessed with the Middle Ages being gray for some reason. Um, they had like sunlight, like uh, the sun did shine <laughs> in medieval Europe. Um, think it did, but that is neither here nor there. So I really want to go with uh, first. Let's talk about the guy that kind of made medievalism a current topic, not who made it because we're going to go back to the 1600s for that. But in the early like 1970s, Leslie J. Workman, who British born, American based, was responsible for the early Kalamazoo sessions. So when I mentioned Kalamazoo, I am talking specifically about the International Congress on Medieval Studies that is where all medievalists kind of gather. It's one of the big international ones. But like Keizu is so big that even in this article that I'm pulling from, the, the guy just says Kalamazoo because we all know what that is. Um, Sarah, you've been to Kalamazoo a, a fair number of times. I've been a couple of times, yes. And would you say that the like rise of medievalism panels has increased since we've been in grad school. Oh, absolutely. And in all s- different kinds of genres from film, mo- uh, TV shows, video games, um, I attended an excellent uh, panel on young adult um, adaptations of medieval texts in the last session, which ended up applying to my dissertation. I love when that happens. Um, but Workman at Kalamazoo said that Medievalism is the process of creating the Middle Ages and, quote, the study not of the Middle Ages themselves, but of scholars, artists and writers who constructed the idea of the Middle Ages that we inherited. So when talking about medievalism, I want to really focus on this is an idea of an age that we are now inheriting as our own, which is a fancy way of me saying that for good or bad, for wrong or right, we now have inherited a very specific idea of what the Middle Ages were, which is not always correct. But it is the one that we have inherited by people who wrote about the Middle Ages. So think of medievalism and the study of it, more so the study of everything surrounding. So like, let's go back should we should we do a history lesson? I feel like we should. Okay, so we're going to do a history lesson. So, the history of medievalism is starts almost directly after the Middle Ages ended. Now, the Middle Ages didn't uh, the people who lived there didn't think of themselves as medieval people. The word medieval is coming from the Latin media album which started in in the 1600s to describe uh, the era that had just passed. So the Renaissance was, I don't want to say like a reaction to the Middle Ages, but, (laughs) (laughs) and and, and I'm sure Renaissance, a scholar is rolling right now, but it was, it's when the idea of, of the dark ages started to become popular, which, of course, it has its own big misunderstanding with what the Middle Ages was. But in Britain, in the wake of the Reformation, so if we're going to skip past uh, the Renaissance wanting to distance itself from the age that had just passed, the Reformation, uh, scholars began collecting medieval manuscripts which, of course, were discarded by religious reformers and then who basically thought that they were worthless. <laughs> and the thing about their Reformation and then later the Enlightenment is that they saw, especially the Enlightenment, saw the Middle Ages as an age of faith rather than reason. And for the Enlightenment, they wanted to go against everything that the Middle Ages was. Which kind of leads to an interesting tension between scholars of that field, don't you think? I think so. And I mean, we all want to be collaborative and be friends with everybody. But, I don't. well, I'm, I'm just kidding. 
I don't know if I have any Victorianist <laughs> friends, actually. However, uh, that's probably more my fault. Um, but I think in terms of thinking about maybe how the Renaissance people, not the scholars, but the people in the Renaissance, you're, we're always at the most modern time, right? Like right, right now, we are in the modern times. And so everything before us is not to us modern. So it's the middle of something else. Right. So it's a logical jump for people during that time to say, well, of course, that's the Middle Ages, because, of course, then we also know there are times before that. So and then, you know, if we're thinking about the term the Dark Ages, that's that gray filter that we love so much. That is. And that's literally why that gray filter exists to portray a dark and violent era where everyone was dying and everywhere was smelly and stinky. There's a lot of misinformation about hygiene in the Middle Ages. Some of it is true, but a lot of it is not correct. But we will have a whole episode on hygiene and medievalism because I think that's really interesting. But to get into a little bit more of what Sarah said, yeah, I like that because we don't know that we're in the middle of something. And who knows, like if we're going to take a futurist kind of stance here, who knows in like a thousand years what people are going to say about this era? Probably nothing kind. <laughs> uh, but what are they going to say? What are they going to call us? Are they going to call us postmodern? Because are they going to call us post-postmodern? Oh, I have a fun aside here. Okay. So when we think about language, right? Um, we have, of course, Old English, which is one of my favorite languages. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that it is technically a separate language. Absolutely. Uh, we have Middle English, and then we have Modern English, which, of course, I love reminding our students that's like Shakespeare. But then, you know, it's so obviously dramatically different from what we speak. So what are we? And one of my favorite uh, professors in my undergrad loved to say we are in the postmodern stage of language. And I'm sure he didn't come up with that. Um, but it's a thing that I really reflect on a lot is we are in the postmodern stage. And while it's not my favorite genre of literature, it is an interesting stage for language. Yeah. And I just I keep hitting my laptops to hear random noises. That's not my fault. I will say the pe- so we're in a but anyway. It was postmodern. It was postmodern. <laughs> so the idea of medievalism then as something that is created by us in this modern era, but is about a nostalgia of a past, is going to get even more complicated when we think about what the future of our entertainment looks like. What what's the future of fantasy, how that's going to all play out together. And more importantly, how are people going to study this? Mm-hmm. Which, okay, maybe not more importantly, but like, well, for us it is, but thinking about how this is going to get studied and conceived of on a larger academic scale, but even more so, how are people going to talk about this phenomenon of, the Middle Ages being so prevalent again because almost every AAA game from last year's Game Awards was medieval. Hmm. Um, and I think, like, thinking about what is on the Game Awards this year, I wouldn't call Legend of Zelda medieval anymore. It skirts it Ish. now. Like, it is medievalism with, like, the loosest ism, you can say. Because I know 16 didn't get nominated, or Final Fantasy 16 didn't get nominated for Game of the Year, but it is nominated for a bunch of other things. And that is squarely medieval Europe. And there are comments that he said that was, well, when he said it, I was like, mm. <laughs> there were black people in, in medieval Europe at the time, which always starts like this huge argument, right, between people of like, well, no, absolutely not. They never even knew that people of color existed, which is – so if we want to do a geography lesson, right, if we want to think about where all of these countries are in relative nature to each other, someone from France could, if they really wanted to, walk from France 
to the end of China. They could just walk there. And during this time, we also have lots of people, granted people of means, but going on pilgrimages to holy sites. Look at Marjorie Kemp, queen. Um, Please look at Marjorie Kemp. Please look at Marjorie Kemp. She will cry if you don't. She will cry if you will. It doesn't matter for her. But we have people going on pilgrimages, so they are not only aware of people of other locations, but they're interacting with them. And they're bringing back all kinds of goods from them as well. Right. Like you also had Vikings who were raiding and trading all throughout North Africa. And so obviously bringing back items and also, unfortunately, people, which I think when we talk about Vikings, we tend to like – at least I've seen some scholars do this – wanting to paint a rosier picture of these people than – And I think that does history a disservice. I think if we gloss over the negative aspects of things, because then it's like, well, I can't like them if they're that bad. It's like, well, you can find them interesting. But you also can't deny that the Norsemen did some pretty awful things to people, which, which of course, I should clarify, it wasn't like every other place in Europe wasn't also pillaging each other left and right. The Norsemen just pillaged churches as well. And that was the kind of – but we there will be a medievalism and Vikings episode in December. So look forward to that. Now, after those many asides, we, we get back to work. <laughs> no, wait. No, we passed him. So I do want to bring oh, yeah. in one, one <laughs> quote from Workman that I really liked. Um, and if we're thinking of once again about what – medievalism can show us is uh, a quote that he said. So the study of the Middle Ages, the application of medieval models to contemporary needs and the inspiration of the Middle Ages in all forms and thought. Mm. And for me and for a lot of what I'm focusing on in my dissertation is not necessarily the medieval text during their time. It's what our understanding of of medieval texts at different points in time can reveal to us. So, like, if you've read Beowulf, for a lot of people in art, he's raiding. It's not the most logical option, but for those of us who have had crappy neighbors, we understand that urge. But that's a whole new interpretation. During the time that the text was originally being, you know, kind of spread around, he was, like, solely the villain. Oh, yeah. Grendel was awful. A fish, but awful. Dr. Liza, I'm so sorry, but Grendel was a fish. He was not a fish. So <laughs> I don't know if I should, should, should explain that to anybody. That's a whole extra episode. We'll, we'll have that debate. On my Patreon. I don't have a Patreon. <laughs> but Sarah's very right. The uh, Grendel gets – well, it all started with the book Grendel, right? Which we may have an aside on that. So John Gardner published Grindel in 1971, which gave Grindel a voice for the first time because in the poem, he never speaks. It's all – we only get insights into his motivations occasionally and it's all action-based. So it's we see what he does, not what he thinks really or not what he says. Grindel gave him a voice and oh, – there we go. So – 1973, Cormac McCarthy, inspired by both the original Beowulf poem and John Gardner's Grindel, wrote an Appalachian version of that called Child of God, posing an Appalachian man in the same kind of role, who engaged in a lot of the same really disgusting behaviors. I didn't know that. Lester Ballard is Grindel. It's published. I said it. Huh. You know what? I believe you. (laughs) I see it. I agree. Um, I think some of you may have had to have read Grindel in high school. I know I did. I was forced to. And it was really funny because I think we read it like before we we read Beowulf. Mm. So my idea of Grindel was already kind of skewed. And then when I read Beowulf, which was the – Seamus Haney. Yeah, it would have been Haney. Which is, <laughs> which we have our own uh, disagreements on. I just don't cancel me. However, I did think Haney's translation was fun. And that's really what matters to me on the grand scheme of things. But 
it was really interesting because I had a whole different idea of Grindel. And when I read Beowulf, you see Grindel as oh, creature. This this um, other students in the in a very small library. Actually, the library is not that small. But anyway, anyway. Also, gonna edit that out too. <laughs> so, if we are going forward with our history lesson, mm-hmm. going back to it. We're going to pass the the Enlightenment and go back to the Romantics. And the Romantics, everybody loves the Romantics. That's not true. I love the Romantics. But they had a very rose-colored glasses on a lot of medieval chivalric romances, which is something I do specialize in. And that's little. (laughs) But even chivalric romances already had a rose-colored hue of Things that were happening and their own stories that were not not great. But the romantics took it and then ran with it. And the idea of the knight in shining armor is more so coming from their ideas than the actual medieval ideas. Did you have something you want to add for that? I always have trouble articulating a well thought out kind of response to like the romantics and I usually kind of conflate them with the Victorians because they're so close together and I'm sure people in those specialties will argue with me on that and you're probably right but I think what I usually end up doing is comparing like the you know romantic chivalric texts from these time periods and thinking about like just Chaucer for example Mm. and you know we have the knight's tale in both the prologue and People during, you know, the Middle Ages were not afraid to complicate the, the idea of the knight. Of course, we had courtly love and we had all of these things going on, but they were very balanced is the wrong word. But like with the knight, we see that his armor has issues. His armor may reveal something uh, wrong with his spirit and or in between, I think, uh, Renaissance and Romance. So um, I've done some work with John Milton, who was a mediocre Old English translator, fun fact. Um, and his, and Paradise Lost was, no, yes. Paradise Lost is actually a retelling of Genesis A and B, the Old English texts. Um, and we have evidence that he translated the majority of it as a project. But once again, re-envisioning. So in Genesis A and B, we have that vision of Satan, who is kind of cool. Like, you know, he's he's fallen and made his decision to do what he can with what he has. But then Milton turns him into that that romantic vision that we see. And I'm thinking about those two statues in the memes. It's like, he carved Satan, and then it was apparently too hot. So he carved another one, and it was even hotter. Hot Satan. As a <laughs> as a queer <laughs> medievalist who saw that statue, I'm not going to lie. I did have a crush on Milton Satan. I did. I still kind of do. Like, was he a bad guy? Kind of. But can I fix him? Yes. <laughs> yes, I can. Um, Satan is the ultimate. I can fix him. That's another episode. All these episodes. Uh, my crush on Satan. Anyway. My crush on Satan. So the. <laughs> um, so then after the Victorians, we, we kind of get even more full scale to the appropriation of the Middle Ages, which kind of starts with the Volkish movement. And then, the, of course, later the, the Third Reich taking Norse ideas and stories and completely turning them into things that they were not. And now we are here to and sitting in this room where we're talking about medievalism, but also kind of dealing with the aftermath of a lot of misinformation, not just misinformation that's like, eh, I mean, whatever. Like, like the idea that they didn't bathe wasn't super dangerous. It's just kind of like a funny, like, well, actually, but then we get to the the Middle Ages were all white, and there was no such thing as queer people, and women couldn't breathe. 
et cetera, et cetera. And then it's like, oh, okay. So now we're using the Middle Ages to harm someone. And that's kind of the big issue that we're facing as scholars is how do we combat people not just getting things wrong, which is like here or there, but using the wrongness to inflict harm on another group of people. Because that is the seriousness of medievalism. And that's kind of where we have to fight back and kind of talk about how to defeat these people. Because when someone – say like a teenager is really interested in God of War. Great game. God of War, Tales of 18, God of War, Ragnarok, fantastic games. But if a teenager gets interested and starts Googling the symbols that Kratos has and then ends up on a Nazi recruitment site – that's and that's not even a like a worst case. I mean, it is worst case, but it's not like a. I'm trying to think. Red herring's not the word. Slippery slope. That's what it is. That's that is the reality of what could actually happen because it is just two clicks away. Whereas an academic article talking about what those symbols actually meant are the the dangers in appropriating those symbols is locked behind a paywall that that teenager cannot access, but furthermore is locked behind language that that teenager cannot access. Because it's not just the the money thing, it's going back to Sarah's point earlier about language, is that the language that we use to describe these things, to talk about them, is normally used to gatekeep people out of a conversation. I'm thinking about how I started my undergrad experience in 2011, and I took a eight-year break between high school and college, so I was already, I think, 27 and pretty, I would say, well-prepared for the environment. But at the time, when I took uh, medieval lit class, it was Anglo-Saxon literature. That was the term. And that is, you know, it wasn't that I read medieval literature or early medieval texts. It was I was reading Anglo-Saxon literature because we were talking about the people. But in the way that then, of course, the alt-right and extremist groups started appropriating the term Anglo-Saxon, we had to rename it. And I mean, I challenge you to find a contemporary you know, document at this point that still calls it Anglo-Saxon literature because it's such a problematic and dangerous term. Yeah, because we were we were here when the official moved to turn it into well, what is the term? Old English now, right? Or just our early medieval. medieval. I don't know if, if people are fighting. Anyway, um, if uh, to turn it away from Anglo-Saxon. And like Sarah said, for the, the reason of getting away from these groups. Um, but in that same kind of vein, like like I don't want to like doom scroll all, all of you, you know, that like it's all bad, nothing's good. There are some really, really fun things about a medievalism, like Renaissance fairs. Because mm-hmm. like the whole idea of like jousting, of course, comes from like Cheval romances and jousting tournaments at the time. But also, when Ivanhoe was written in the 1800s, jousting became super popular, an extremely popular sport. And I think also, Sarah, you mentioned earlier when we were talking about the Civil War, right? Yeah. So um, in some of my research and uh, like looking into what Appalachian people and people in the South thought about medieval literature – I discovered that we had jousting tournaments in the 1800s, um, especially in the Appalachian region. So like Tennessee, um, North Carolina, I think lower parts of Kentucky, that's a whole debate that you don't want to get into about what is Appalachia. But so we had these tournaments going on for several years and um, they did take a break during the Civil War for obvious reasons. But what's really interesting and what I, I thought about when you were talking about, like, you know, we want to see ourselves in these mm-hmm. texts, is that, of course, for this time period, most of the jousting tournaments were majority white people and, of course, of a specific kind of uh, ability. But they also had black tournaments that sometimes were more successful 
had traveling heroes. So there were black knights who traveled around and competed at different jousting tournaments. And they actually lasted a little bit longer than the other tournaments. And this was all happening in the same era of the Civil War around then. That is because like, I didn't know that. I did not know that, that there were like black knight champions in like the Civil War era South who were going around and doing these tournaments because often we don't really talk about things like that when – I mean I had no idea that was even a thing. And now I want to go research it. I want to go look that up because that is such a really cool thing that I didn't know. But it also shows that medievalism and its impact on popular culture at that time was that powerful, that it was something that was happening not just in Europe but also in America and elsewhere. Like it was a powerful force that was spreading because – and for better or worse actually because you have – there's a lot to be said about um, – was it uh, – do you know if it was both enslaved people versus like freemen or was it just freed people? That is something that I still need to look into. Um, there have been a couple of papers presented about this, but that we're looking at some different factors. So we're still trying to find specific statistics showing exactly who these people were. But that is a really good thought is, you know, who exactly were at these tournaments? Who was attending? Yeah. Um, and even what did their advertisements look like? Right. Because I really want to know what are – like black Americans doing at that time with um, this a medieval idea and how are they constructing the idea of medievalism in terms of their culture and that the like daily brutality they were facing and what kind of like reprieve that this gave them. And this is something I definitely intend to research more and hopefully come back and report to you all. But another thing I'm really interested in is how – you know, who owns the horses they're competing on? Who owns the equipment and everything? Where do they train? What do their lives look like? Um, because I think it's a window. And this certainly doesn't mean that everything was, was beautiful and perfect for everybody. But it's a really interesting view into how we thought about it during that time and especially how different groups of people did. Yeah. Like my sister does, is a lawyer and she works a lot on black land ownership and especially like heirs property, which is very interesting. And I think that a lot of you should look that up. But I, I will ask her because she might actually know the answer to these uh, these questions. Um, which kind of brings me to my next point about what like uh, when you said seeing yourself in the Middle Ages, which is something I really wanted to do. As someone who is mixed race especially and mixed race black, I really wanted to – no, what was what my life would have been like in the in like that era, like pre the the transatlantic a slave trade? What would my life have been like? Because when we talk about Black history, right, especially in American school systems, we don't start with like the medieval kingdoms of Africa or like Africa in like the 14 1500s we start at enslavement mm -hmm. and then we go to segregation and we typically try to only stay with black trauma rather than looking at what these kingdoms of africa are doing what they ha did do in the middle ages and if we talk about africa at all it's going to be egypt and it's going to be ancient egypt specifically we're not going to talk about anything else and that disconnect for me was I didn't know what medieval Africa even looked like because Africa is such a huge continent and there's thousands upon thousands of different tribes, different countries that each had their own a specific era during the – I mean I don't think they called it the Middle Ages. But again, do you know that you're in the middle of something? But they each had their own kingdoms, their own tribes, their own cultures that – we are not taught. We're not even given a glimpse into – in America. I would also argue in England as well and in Canada, but especially in America because I am an American and I'm coming with this from an American standpoint of what our cultural history lessons were. 
we're not given that, especially if you are black American, like my dad, like my granddad, like myself. We don't know what our medieval culture was because how could we? A lot of that was lost. We can we know which of our grandparents were enslaved, which ones were freed. I know that my dad went to the first um, integrated high school in South Carolina, but are in the upstate. But we, I don't know any cultural history beyond that point. And so for me, that's why I really want, liked fantasy growing up was I wanted to see myself in a work. And of course, you had authors like Ursula K. Le Guin who put people of color in her works. Rest in power. We'll, we'll rep, uh, rest in peace. But fantastic woman. If you haven't read her fantasy stuff, our, her, our, her sci-fi, go read Left Hand of Darkness. But I wanted to see myself, which, of course, led me to Google. And then I will, I will admit I was lucky. I did find a, oh, here is, like, the Black Knight, Sir Morian. And I was obsessed. For a very long time, I was like, oh, you mean there was a Black Knight of the Round Table? And there was. All that to say, Sarah, what did – what led you to medievalism and to medieval studies? When you talk to a medi- medievalist is what brings us to the study is not, you know, being given or being exposed to an academic text. Because, I mean, how exciting is that when you're in high school? Um, so for me personally, it was actually the Zemeckis Beowulf film, which um, I will defend to the death. It's a hill I will die on. I think it has some merit. Not as an accurate representation of the tale, but maybe of the tale as it would have been if it had never been committed to a manuscript. So if it had stayed an oral narrative, would have been really fun. But I watched the movie several times um, and then got really interested in comparing it to the Haney translation and then compared that to the Neil Gaiman, Roger Avery scripts that they released, I think, a year after it came out and looking at how they adapted from the original poem and then how they ended up having to revise that for the film. So it starts and ends with Beowulf. Also, I'm a Tolkien fan and, you know, he's a pipeline. You can't help it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think I think a lot of people got into a medieval with with Tolkien's. I mean, Tolkien was a scholar. Mm-hmm. Like, so it just makes sense that like, he did use a lot of Norse and arguably Celtic mythology to craft a lot of his world. And it's just kind of a stepping stone from there to medieval studies. I think also for, uh, for me was uh, T.A. Barron's Merlin series. Like, I loved it. Uh, oh, and Aragon. I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I read that when I was in. Uh, Middle school, read that book. Four backward pages were falling out. Um, I did try to reread it. We read a lot better when I was in middle school. Oh, I bet. Word of caution, do not try to reread books that you really liked in middle school and and, and expect them to hold up the same way that, that you thought that they would. They won't. And you will be – not to like knock Aragon fans. I'm not doing that at all. Um, I just personally, for me, as someone who's read a lot more fantasy and who has consumed a lot of adult fantasy, now I, I like I can hardly read like YA fantasy anymore without getting frustrated at except with with the with the exception of like Tracy Dion's. Thank you. I was about to come to her defense, <laughs> but like like I read one and I was frustrated. I was like, if y'all had just had a conversation, but but that was like these are teenagers. When I was a teenager, what I have had a conversation? No. And then I realized this is not for me. Uh, this is not written for me. And then I moved on. But um, speaking of Tracy Dion and Black Arthurian stuff, mm-hmm. uh, she is a black author who wrote Legendborn. Mm-hmm. And it is set, it is using Arthurian mythos and putting it in. Modern day Appalachia, specifically uh, UNC Chapel Hill, right? Mm-hmm. And fantastic. Like, she, she gets a lot of her Arthurian lore right, and she's putting it in a way that is both engaging, fun, and where people can access it. 
Yes. And uh, so that is one of the biggest things that I got out of Keizu last year was uh, somebody presented about her series. And I immediately went and bought both uh, Legendborn and Bloodmarked and without spoilers. Um, it does a lot of interesting things with, once again, that modern interpretation of medieval literature. And she does YA right. There are conversations where there need to be conversations most of the time. But isn't that just a Jane Austen thing, too, looking at you, Victorianus? True. That's true. I'm not a Victorianist, but, uh, but I will answer for them. But I do also really like the story craft of what would a young black girl's experience be in an all-white setting, especially coming from aristocratic like old world money and which is something I think a lot of us who are either black or mixed race who who have dealt with this same stuff in North Carolina and South Carolina can really understand and be like oh yeah no 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 I've I've seen this happen I've seen this occur literally yesterday it's not something that's abnormal it's not something that's sensationalized it is simply this girl's experience but I also like how she doesn't shy away from like black spirituality also especially in talking about root work which I was very happy and I think the second one delves more into that which is good because I was I I, I didn't want that to get lost in the whiteness of Arthurian legend which it is I mean most of Arthurian is very, very white, with the exception of Sermorian. And it's very funny because I won't uh, spoil things, but one of the, the main villains gets his story wrong. And it's a purposeful move by Dion to kind of pinpoint that. He quotes Tennyson a lot. And that tells us a lot for those in the know. Right. He quotes Tennyson. And that is the coolest thing to me is, is that he's quoting medievalism as a medieval factoid. And it's not. It's wrong. And those of us who are a medievalist are sitting there like, oh, that's what that's what Tracy Dion is doing. Tracy Dion, come on this podcast. Please let me talk to you about this. (laughs) Um, So but I think like I do want to talk more about this, but I think at a later date, Mm -hmm. because I think think they have gone on long enough I think it's time to like wrap up because we will just sit here and talk about yes. Legendborn all day but is there anything else that, that you wanted to add or point out about what we've talked about today I think just if you are interested in medieval literature don't get overwhelmed with the academic weight because people have been reading and thinking about and writing about medieval literature for hundreds of years And some of those ideas still hold, some of them don't. And we are constantly evolving and updating our thoughts. So don't be afraid. Jump in. Jump in with one of the short old English poems. Deor is my favorite, as is most uh, medievalists. Um, Beowulf is great. The the Roy Leutze version is the best. Um, That's our fight. But um, yeah, don't be afraid. Medievalism is okay. I am medieval. I am a medievalismist, and so can you be. And so can you be. Yeah, just to uh, to piggyback, like pick something you're interested in. Like if you want to talk about Norse stuff, go read a translation of Snorri, and then get really weirded out about the way he euhemerized uh, a lot of the gods, which is very funny because at one point he's just like. The gods are actually Trojan heroes. And then at one point, he's like, JK, never mind. And we just accept both. Both are, I mean, and, and then realize, oh, Snorri was a Christian monk writing about these gods that people worshipped like a thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. That's probably really large estimate. But like he was writing in the 13th, 12th century. So about, Yeah. Like, keep in mind uh, that the Middle Ages is a time span of roughly a thousand years. So there are different periods within the Middle Ages. And when people try to lump them all into one big Middle Age, it doesn't really work because 
each of those different periods had a vastly different idea, even in terms of the way they approach religion, the way women's rights were working, the way – like hell, even the way commerce was being done vastly changed over this time period. Mm-hmm. So to and, – and that's not even getting into how it changed between country to country, continent to continent. So when you're talking about the, the Middle Ages, you're talking about a very complicated history of a thousand years. And that may scare you, but that just means there's all that much more places to jump in. So join a conversation. The worst someone can tell you is like actually the worst they do is yell at you, but then you just hit that fancy little block button. Never worry about it again. Um, but – there are resources out there that I will link and I will try to find resources in the show notes that I can put that are beginner friendly and also independent scholar friendly, which means – for us, that means you don't have to have access to a university to engage in the conversation. You can um, engage with it on your own time and without having to pay like 50 bucks. But – I think that's the end of this episode. Sarah, do you have anything you want to promo? I guess I'm going to promo myself. What? So um, I, as I said before, I'm really into public-facing writing and public writing because that's the accessible way to enter a new conversation. So if you want to find me out there on social media, especially Instagram, I am the bad medievalist because I'm bad at it. And um, my website is itsthebadmedievalist.com. And you can find me at either of those places. You can find me right here wherever you're listening to this podcast at Getting Medieval. You could also find me at, I think it's like nightly-reader on on Instagram. I don't know. I have to, to look again to something like that. I'll post it in, in the uh, show notes. What do I know? Um, I don't know how to promo myself. <laughs> Um, if you want to read some of my works, you can go to joshmangle.com and improve my portfolio. And if you're um, looking to hire a game writer, hey, <laughs> hey, I'm available. But <laughs> I, I, I would like a job. <laughs> but anyway, thank you for listening. And I will see you next time with a new co-host. Not that I'm firing Sarah. I just have a new co-host every time. But Sarah will definitely be back. Unless you all want her to uh, stick around, which what if they do? Then I guess we have a podcast. Period. All right. (laughs) I will talk to you all later. Have a wonderful rest of your day. And cue outro music. (laughs) (laughs)